We have now come to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. The Old Covenant Tabernacle. The Old Covenant Tabernacle. We'll actually read through verse 10, so we understand the context of what to anticipate next time. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Please join me in prayer. Our Father, we know as we approach your word that this is the glorious truth of the gospel, that the old covenant is temporary and the old covenant was there to signify and symbolize the coming of Christ and all that he would accomplish by his ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Father, this is essentially what is in your word and we thank you that you have given us this insight, you've given us this truth, you have made it plain and clear to us that this is the, the way of salvation and this is the fundamental means of understanding your holy word. Grant to us, Father, greater conviction about this and greater understanding on this matter that we might grow in our faith and be better equipped to explain the gospel wherever we go and with whomever we have a discussion. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we come to this passage comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, we have to ask this question, which is a common question that many people have asked over the years. They have asked it for millennia. What is the true relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Or the Old Testament and the New Testament? This is a very important question. It's a very important question because if you just pick up your Bible and put your fingers between the pages, beginning from Genesis to Malachi, and then you put your fingers between the pages of Matthew to Revelation, you can see that the, the Old Testament is three-fourths of your Bible. Scholars have tabulated exact percentages that it is 77% of the Bible. The Old Testament is 77% of the Bible. Then, if you add 
the quotations that are found in the New Testament of the Old, add another 7%, and you have a total of 84% of the Bibles we have from Genesis to Revelation. 84% of the words of our Bible are actually the words of the Old Testament, that part. So we naturally have to ask the question, what is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament? Not everybody gets it right. And in fact, if we don't get it right, if we don't understand it, then it is a matter of our salvation. People do not look at it that way. They look at it as just another interpretation, another way of looking at things, as though they're just going to an ice cream store and choosing a different flavor of ice cream, whatever they prefer. But it is more serious than that. It's not a, a flavor of ice cream, or it's not a kind of meat, or it's not a kind of vegetable, whatever you feel like eating. It's not like that. It is more important than that. It has to do with our salvation. And it, more specifically, the rituals of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, or later the temple, what Moses constructed in the tabernacle, and then what Solomon constructed in the temple, what was the purpose of all of that? What was the actual means or meaning of all of those things? What did that entail? We must understand that correctly because if we don't understand it correctly, we might put our hope in something that's wrong, something that's false. And if we believe that, and even worse, if we begin teaching other people that, it becomes dangerous. It's very dangerous and destructive for souls. Now, as I said, we're not the first ones to ask the question, what is the relationship between the two testaments or the two covenants, the Old Covenant or Old Testament and the New Testament or New Covenant? What is the relationship? Firstly, let me give you examples of individuals you may never have heard of, but if you do any study, even casual study of church history, you will come across these names. Firstly, three heretics. Three heretics or false teachers, and then I'll give you examples of a true interpretation of these matters. One of them, one of the first ones, after the time of the apostles, 2,000 years ago, after the time of the apostles, in about AD 140, there was a man named Marcion. Marcion said the following. He says that the God of the Old Testament is different, and he's evil compared to the God of the New Testament, who is good. He said the God of the Old Testament makes, is the maker of all things, but he is not the father of Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament is not the father of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is a completely new teaching that was never mentioned in the Old Testament. Completely new teaching that was never mentioned in the Old Testament. That means that whatever is in the Old Testament has nothing to do with Christ and salvation. Another one, his name is Pelagius. Pelagius. He lived about A.D. 350 to 420, around 350 to 420. Pelagius. He taught something similar, and he said that the law introduces men into the kingdom of heaven just in the same way as the gospel does. The law, that means the Old Testament, and especially the law of Moses, introduces people into the kingdom of heaven. That means if you obey it, then you'll get to heaven. So obedience is that way, or salvation is that way, but it is not in Christ in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they don't know of Christ, they don't preach Christ, they have no clue 
about the coming of Christ. They don't believe in him whatsoever. So, that's Pelagius. And then, closer to our times, is a man named John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby, from 1800 to 1882. In the 1800s, essentially, he taught what is known today as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. A dispensation is a period of time, and he has seven or eight periods of time in which God's way of salvation is different. God's way of salvation is different. It's not always in Christ. It's only in Christ right now. In this age, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church. From the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church, salvation is in Christ. But before that and after the rapture of the church, salvation is by other means, not by faith in Christ. So Darbyism or dispensationalism teach that. Now, one more. I'd like to read to you part of the doctrinal statement of faith of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary. That says the following in reference to this topic. Specifically, even the sacrifices and the tabernacle. They say, We believe that it has always been true that without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6, and that the principle of faith was prevalent in the lives of all the Old Testament saints. However, we believe that it was historically impossible that they should have had as the conscious object of their faith the incarnate crucified Son, the Lamb of God, John 1.29. And that it is evident that they did not comprehend, as we do, that the sacrifices depicted the person and work of Christ. We believe also that they did not understand the redemptive significance of the prophecies or types concerning the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 Therefore, we believe that their faith toward God was manifested in other ways as is shown by the long record in Hebrews 11, 1-40. We believe further that their faith was thus manifested, uh, it, counted, it was counted unto them for righteousness. Romans 4, 3, with Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, 5-8, Hebrews 11, 7, unquote. So that is the quote from their doctrinal statement. Now, there are many things that are in error here, contradictory to the Bible. But just to highlight a few of them, when it says that it was historically impossible, they mean that before the resurrection, and especially the day of Pentecost, nobody, even Jesus' own disciples, believed that he was going to die on the cross. They never heard it. They never believed it. They didn't trust in it. And they say... When, that they did not understand that they should believe that he would be the crucified son, the Lamb of God. And then they quote John 1.29, or cite John 1.29. However, this is a clear example of a clear contradiction in the Bible, because John 1.29 is John the Baptist, before the death of Christ, proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John the Baptist knew Jesus was going to die as a lamb, like the Old Testament sacrificial lambs. He was going to die on the cross for our sins. That's what he was preaching to everybody. He was preaching that. So in their quote or citation of John 1.29, they miscite it. They misquote it. It is not a proof of their position. It contradicts their position. And there are many examples like that in this statement of faith. They do not understand what the Bible itself is teaching. It's very plain, uh, plain and clear that they do not. So, what is it that we should believe? What is a better understanding of what the Bible actually teaches? Firstly, the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith. Many people who are in Presbyterian churches and churches known as Reformed churches, they hold to this confession. And notice what they say. Now, now I will cite a few sources that get it correct, okay, that understand it properly. They say, This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, Paschal meaning the Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. Notice that. The object of the faith is in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. That's what they say. Then, another confession, known as the Belgic Confession. These are confessions of the 1500s, 1600s. The Belgic Confession says, We believe and profess in one Catholic and universal church. Catholic meaning universal or everywhere around the world, not the Roman Catholic Church which is a holy congregation and assembly of the true Christian believers who expect, notice, who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by His blood and are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end. For Christ is an eternal King who cannot be without subjects. There, it's very clear. They say, from the beginning of the world till the end of the world, whoever believes in, in the truth, they are believing in Christ for their entire salvation, washed by the blood of Christ, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then a third example is the Second London Confession, which is the Second London Baptist Confession. This was in the year 1689. And one excerpt from their confession says, The justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. That is, the way that we're saved under the New Testament is the same means of salvation in the Old Testament. They say in every regard it is the same. So whatever is fundamental, whatever is central and essential in the way of our salvation, the way they were saved with Adam, with Enoch, Noah, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, and anybody else who was a believer, a saint in the Old Testament, he put his faith in the coming death of Christ for his salvation. That's the way it was. That's what these confessions are asserting. And now notice, these confessions are not just one stray individual here or there, but these are confessions compiled by many, many theologians and pastors together asserting these truths. These were, when the gospel was properly taught in the 15 and 1600s in Europe, these truths were universally believed wherever the gospel was faithfully taught. And even some nations, whole nations, were converted based on these truths. Many parts of Germany, many parts of Switzerland, many parts of Scotland and England, they were believing these truths. This is what the Puritans and the Pilgrims believed when they came to the United States. They believe what these confessions are saying about the true gospel. So, is this correct though? What does the Bible teach? Is this correct? That the Old Testament predicts Christ, and they believed in that prediction, and the New Testament announces Christ. Is that true? Well, that's what we have been saying. We have been saying this for several weeks now, especially since our journey from Hebrews chapter 7, in chapter 7 and 8. And we'll continue speaking like this until we get to chapter 11. At least then, if not chapters 12 and 13 of Hebrews, because we have examples even in those chapters of these very truths. But now, in chapter 9, he is focused more specifically on the rituals of the tabernacle. That is, the furniture of the tabernacle. Why specific pieces of furniture? Why certain objects in the place of worship? Why were they Instituted? Why were they established? That's his argument here. So let's see specifically why. Verse 9, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. The first covenant. By first, we know he means the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. We know this from chapter 8, verses 7 to 13. He's using the term first synonymously with Old Covenant or Old Testament, and he's using the word second synonymously with the New Covenant. So there's the first and there's the second. He says, the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. Regulations. Well, who institutes a regulation to make sure that people know what is expected by the regulator? Who is the regulator in this case? The regulator is God himself, the judge of heaven. The judge of heaven has laws, has regulations, ordinances that must be obeyed by those who are his subjects. So God says to them, this is the way I want it done. And we know this to be the case from chapter 8, verse 5, because he proved, quoting the Old Testament, from Exodus 25, 40, he quotes Exodus 25, 40, and he says, that the priests on the earth serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. 
So, these are the regulations. Make them exactly, precisely as you are told to do so. Then, naturally, if God says this is precisely, in every detail, the way it's supposed to be, would He just tell them this is the way it's supposed to be without the why? No. That's His argument in these chapters. He's not just telling them what to do, but He's also telling them why to do it. He's also telling them why to do it. For example, chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. A symbol for the present time. So a sign and a symbol. That's what the rituals were. That's what the furniture was. Signs and symbols for the present time. That's why the regulations. The regulations were instituted as signs and symbols. They were not instituted to save the people from sin. That is, if you make sure every day to light the incense altar, then you'll go to heaven. That's not what it was. If you make sure on the Day of Atonement to take the blood and go into the most holy place, then you'll get to heaven. Whether it's the priest who does that or the whole nation automatically goes to heaven. That was not the point. That's not the point. That's why he says they were signs and symbols. They signified and symbolized. That's what he said in Hebrews 9. And that's what Moses said in Exodus 25, verse 40, and many other places in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. He said it again and again that this is a pattern. This is a pattern. Even the Sabbath is a sign, is a sign. He said all these things. Signs and patterns of what? Of heaven. Of things that have to do with eternal salvation. Not merely things of the earth. So, regulations of divine worship. We also notice here a truth. It says, it's of divine worship. There's a regulation of divine worship. Which means that nobody can casually enter the presence of God. Nobody can go in a, in a jolly way, skipping and jumping, into the presence of God. Nobody can come into the presence of God on a whim. Nobody can do it that way, because there are regulations of divine worship. If we're going to enter the presence of God, we cannot do it based on our wishes, based on our whims or our fickleness. We cannot enter God's presence that way. That's why he said that in verses 6 to 10 that the priests, whether the Levites or the priests of Aaron's line, that they had specific regulations on when they could enter the holy place and the most holy place. And even the people, the people generally, they had to stand or wait in the court they could not go to the holy place, and let alone could they go to the most holy place. There were three major parts to that tabernacle. The people could go to the court, but they could not go to the holy place. And even the Levites could not go to the most holy place. Only the sons of Aaron could go to the most holy place, the holy of holies. That's the way it was. Why was it that way? 
He, because he says there were regulations of divine worship to teach the people a lesson. It wasn't to segregate them in the, in the physical sense, merely a physical sense. It was not merely for segregation. Okay, you common people are worthless, but then the Levites are better and you're more superior. You've got better value in the sight of God. And then the sons of Aaron, they are the, the pristine of, uh, people of the whole group. They are the superior ones of the whole group. And they are better in character. They are better in every way. And God cares more for them than he does for all the rest of the people. No, that would be a mere physical way of looking at it. No, it had to do with approaching God. The regulations were there to know, for the people to understand by illustration, by a sign, by a symbol, that it's not easy to get into the presence of God. You must have sacrifice. You must have confession of sin. You must have a mediator. That is the Levites and the Aaronites. You must have mediators before you can approach God. But then, it didn't end that way. It wasn't that the Levites or the Aaronites, it couldn't be that they themselves were the guarantee and the bridge between the people and God. How could they think that? Because they knew that the Levites were wicked men just like they were. They knew that. They, they were the ones who would get drunk, and so would the Levites get drunk. And even the sons of Aaron get drunk. They knew that they uh, had lustful thoughts and sinful, adulterous thoughts, and they knew the Levites did the same, and they knew the Aaronites did the same. They knew that they had a propensity to lie, cheat, and steal, and so did the Levites, and so did the Aaronites. They all did. So they weren't better people in any way. They couldn't be genuine, true mediators between themselves and God. How could they think that? Who would think that? It's absolutely false. They must have had Moses explain, Isaiah explain, and even David. Remember David in Psalm 51, he says, you are not pleased with sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. If it was merely a matter of me giving an animal up, an unblemished animal up, one of my sheep up for sacrifice, if that were the means of my redemption, if that were the means of my forgiveness, I would do it. But Psalm 51 says, you're not pleased with sacrifice, because if you were pleased, I would give it. God doesn't care about the dead animal or the blood of the animal in and of itself. He wants to use that as an illustration of how to approach God. Uh, why we need Christ in order to bridge the gap, this great gap between ourselves and God. Furthermore, he teaches us in verse 2, he teaches us the various parts of the building or the tabernacle. Verse 2, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Now, I said that there were three major sections of the tabernacle. There was the court where the people could go, the common people could enter the court. Then there was the holy place, which he's calling the first, the first or the outer one. He's calling that the holy place in verse 2 the holy place. And then the third part where only the, the sons of Aaron could go when they were properly qualified to go there. 
at certain times, they could enter the most holy place, which in verse 3 is called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. So these are the three places. Well, what happened or who or what was in the second place, the holy place? Well, we know from other scriptures that the tribe of Levi, the men, qualified men of the tribe of Levi, they were commissioned and appointed, called by God, to make sure that everything was in order in that middle section, the holy place, that second part. They were commissioned. And what was there? What was placed there in that holy place? It tells us of two things. Basically two things, although he separates them into three. There was the lamp stand. The lamp stand, which means there was the stand and also the candles there on the lamp stand. That's what was there in the holy place. And then he says there was the table and the sacred bread. By the table and sacred bread, what he means is the bread on, uh, it was placed on the table. So this is the table of sacred bread or the table of showbread as it's also called. The table of sacred bread. That was the other piece, that was the other item placed right there. The lampstand and the table of sacred bread. The, the table was sacred and the bread on it was sacred. All of these were constructed by Moses when the tabernacle was initially made. That's what was there. Then he says in verse 3, And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Now, there was a curtain or a veil. It doesn't matter what term we use, but there was a divider. There was a screen. There was... In, to, to divide one part from the other. There was a screen, there was a curtain, and then there was a veil. But in this case, he's saying this second veil. Whatever term you use, we know there was a divider between each of these compartments of the building. So, getting into the most holy place, or the holy of holies, he says there was a veil. And he also calls that most holy place the tabernacle, or a tabernacle. So the whole structure was called a tabernacle, but you could also say each part is the tabernacle. And that's what he says in verse 3, that most holy place, the inner place, was inside the second veil. It's the tabernacle, the holy of holies. A word of clarification. This is an odd phrase for us, the holy of holies, because we don't normally speak that way in English. But in the Hebrew language, what they're saying is they're using an adjective as a noun, an adjective as a noun, the holy of holies. Because holy, uh, um, holy is an adjective, and even holies is the plural form of the adjective. We don't normally speak this way in English, but in Hebrew they speak this way in order to say, or in, in order to convey the superlative, the superlative meaning of an adjective. By superlative, we, we would say there's great, greater, and greatest. So to say the greatest, this is the way Hebrew does it. So that's why some just translate it the most holy place. Instead of saying the holy of holies, they'll say the most holy place. That's what we're talking about. Only Aaron and his sons could enter there 
even uh, then they had to be qualified before they entered there. So what was in that most holy place? Verse 4. It says, Having a golden altar of incense, that's one, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, and then, so that's number two, then what is in the Ark of the Covenant? By Ark, we're talking about a box, a box of, that's covered in gold. What was in this Ark or this box? It says, There was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. So, the golden jar holding the manna. We know the manna was God's gift to the people. It was bread that was falling on the ground six days a week while the people were in the wilderness for 40 years. That's the manna. So a small part of that manna, a portion of it, was kept in a golden jar, preserved there, inside the Ark of the Covenant. Further, Aaron's rod which budded. When the people had been complaining and griping, in Exodus chapter 16 and 17, uh, sorry, Numbers chapter 16 and 17, when, when they were complaining and griping against Moses, God caused Aaron's rod miraculously to bud. Of course, it was a rod, it was a staff, it wasn't a tree. It was outside without any roots or anything, but he miraculously caused it to bud. And he made a distinction and said, listen, I appointed Aaron. I did not appoint any of you who have the rod. I appointed him. And that was a miraculous way that he said, I am working in Aaron. I'm not working in you all. And lastly, the tables of the covenant. The covenant is another way of describing the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are described in various ways. This is one of them. The tables of the covenant, or tablets of the covenant. Remember, they were stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. That's what the tables of the covenant means. So, these were all there in the most holy place. They were kept there. Now, notice. Notice what it is teaching us. What is it teaching us? He tells us in verse 5, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We cannot now speak in detail. So he's telling us, or mentioning what was important, but he does not give an elaborate explanation as to the meaning of all of these. But what can we say? And furthermore, let's go to verse 5 where it says, and above it, above the ark, of the covenant were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Verse 5, the cherubim. Cherubim in English comes from a Hebrew word which means an angel. We note that in Genesis 3:24, that when God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, he stationed cherubim or angels right there at the entrance into the garden in order to prevent them from re-entering. After he expelled them, he prevented them from re-entering because of their sin. So, those same kinds of angels are here mentioned that there were, Moses constructed, he made angels to sit on the lid of the ark, on the lid of the ark, the cover of the ark. He had two angels facing each other with their wings spread, touching each other, but also some space in between. We can read about this in Exodus 25. 
and there God's voice would come out from that area, from the most holy place. And Moses, personally, whenever he entered the most holy place, God would speak to him his word. That's what he's describing here. The angels were there. Glorious angels were there. And notice it says it's on the mercy seat, overshadowing or on top of the lid. The lid is called mercy seat or propitiatory seat, or the seat of propitiation or for forgiveness of sins. You get, get mercy right there when you enter into that place. So what does all this signify? We know it does not end in itself. It's not merely physical and material. It's not talking about that. It's talking about salvation. Chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Chapter 9 and verse 9. Which is a symbol for the present time. Chapter 9 and verse 23. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Our apostle has said very clearly in 9, 8, 9, 9, 9, 23, 24, and our passage in chapter 10, 1 to 18, that what Moses instituted was a sign, a symbol, a shadow. What he instituted was not the substance of salvation. 
What he instituted was not the reality of salvation. He instituted signs and symbols of salvation. So, if that's the case, if that is the case, the lampstand signifies that Christ is the light of the world. The table of sacred bread, that he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. Then, the golden altar of incense. He is the, the aroma, the fragrant aroma of God. Christ is, with the Ark of the Covenant, he is the one whose presence that we must have access to. He is the one whose presence we must have access to. The golden jar of manna, the manna. He is the bread from heaven that has come down from heaven. The miraculous bread that has come down from heaven. Aaron's rod, which budded. Because only in Christ do we produce fruit. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Only in Christ can we even produce fruit. Miraculous fruit. Not natural fruit. Not that comes from our own flesh. But miraculous fruit only comes from Christ. And the tables of the law, or the tables of the covenant, it reflects the holiness of Christ, how we fail in that holiness, and how we must have Christ's holiness, His righteousness, His obedience, His active obedience, how He actively lived day by day, and His passive obedience by dying on the cross for our sins. We need Christ's righteousness for our salvation. This is what it's signifying. It's signifying all of this. Now, you may ask, did the people of the Old Testament really know this? Did the people of the Old Testament really understand this? I submit to you that they did. This is why it says in Matthew 13, 17, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What were the many prophets and righteous men of the Old Testament longing to see? The actual Christ in physical form, walking and talking and living among them, and even dying and rising from the dead. They wanted to actually see those things. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 13, 17, before it actually happened, that the prophets and righteous men were longing for it. This is also why it says in Luke chapter 2 that God told or the Holy Spirit told Simeon that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ because he longed to see Christ come into the world. He longed to see him, to touch him, to hold him and he was granted that privilege of holding Christ when he was born. He held him in his arms and he praised God for this ability. Why? Because he was expecting the coming of Christ. And God granted it to him. Furthermore, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. One of the heretics that I quoted earlier in the message, they cited this passage, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. But they misquoted it. They miscited it. Because this very verse says the opposite of what they intended. 1 Peter 1, 10. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You see, 
the Apostle Peter says that the salvation that we enjoy is also the salvation that the prophets prophesied would come. That would be coming and be fulfilled in the actual first coming of Christ. And notice they were making careful search and inquiry, seeking to know. Careful search and inquiry, seeking to know. That sounds like Simeon, does it not? That sounds like all the other righteous men who longed to see what the apostles saw. That sounds like that, does it not? And who was teaching them all of this? Who was teaching them and guiding them in all this? It says in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ within them. The Spirit of Christ within them. The Holy Spirit was teaching them. And what was he teaching them? The, he, he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He wasn't merely saying in a vague way, somebody's going to come. Somebody's going to come. Some deliverer is going to come. Some mediator is going to come. It wasn't in a vague way. It wasn't in a cloudy way. It was in a clear way that he was teaching them that Christ would suffer. Notice it says, Spirit of Christ, sufferings of Christ, and the glories to follow. It's not only his death, but also his resurrection, his ascension, his session, his second coming, the day of judgment, eternity. They're teaching all of this in the prophets. The coming of Christ. Now, one might also say, well, they didn't actually believe that. If one is unconvinced so far, let's see what Peter further says of David. Did David understand these truths? King David, did he understand these truths? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. He, uh, this is Peter also preaching on the day of Pentecost to a, a big crowd of people. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 25, he says the following. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He has just quoted a portion of Psalm 16, written by David. Okay? Verse 29. Now he interprets. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and knew that God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Peter says, listen, brothers, we have David's tomb here. He died he was buried, and his tomb is right here. David was not talking about himself. David was talking about Christ. And it also says in verse 30, 30, because he was a prophet, that means he had the Spirit of Christ within him. He was a true prophet with the Spirit of Christ. And verse 30 also says, he knew. He knew. This is not vagaries. This is not cloudy thinking. 
He had clear thinking, clear knowledge. He knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants upon his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. David, King David, had conscious knowledge of the death and resurrection of Christ. He had that. That's what he wrote in the Psalms. Not just Psalm 16, but several other Psalms. And one more place to see, and that is in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Did Moses, the one who actually instituted the tabernacle and the law of Moses, the one who was the mediator or the means, the agent of delivering this to the people of Israel, did he know this? The answer, yes. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verse 24. Verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He tells us here that Moses had his eyes fixed on something else or someone else. And actually verse 27 says, he was seeing him who is unseen, which means Moses had his eyes, spiritual eyes, fixed on the unseen world, the spiritual world, that is God himself. But not just eternal and unseen things, but even specifically, notice, the reproach of Christ. Verse 26 says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches. Christ himself, the reproach of Christ, that means the shame of Christ, that means the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, that's the reproach of Christ. The reproach is not his resurrection. The reproach is not all of his wonderful miracles. The reproach is not his reigning in heaven. The reproach is not his ability to say a word and have legions of angels submit to him. That's not reproach. That's glory. The reproach has to do with his persecution culminating in his humiliating death. That's what it is. The reproach of Christ. So Moses also knew this. And lastly, can we grant that if Moses was a true prophet of God and David was a true prophet of God and John the Baptist was a true prophet of God and Simeon was a righteous man, that what they knew, they did not keep to themselves. What they knew for their own salvation, they did not hide. They did not bury it, but they explained it. They taught it as good teachers and preachers and prophets, that they taught it to the people, whoever they encountered. They taught them these truths. They did not keep it to themselves. As well, why is this so important? Let me submit to you at least two reasons at the moment why this is so important. For one, it makes sense of the Bible from beginning to end. It brings cohesion. It brings harmony. It shows that the Bible is not contradictory. It's not a hodgepodge. It's not just thrown into a basket and mixed up and shaken up. The Bible is not like that. Human books are that way, but not the divine book, not the Holy Bible itself. 
It is from the Holy Spirit. So we see consistency and harmony in the Bible that we read. Not a mixture, not different ways of salvation, not dispensations as dispensationalists say. Not like that. It is harmonious. It is coherent. It is logical. That gives us confidence that we're dealing with the truth. Because if we don't have that kind of confidence, we have dissonance and contradiction in our minds, we have no confidence and courage to speak up on the way of salvation and truth. So that's the first reason. Another reason is that everyone has a propensity to want to believe that salvation is by another means. Everyone wants to believe it. Christendom, over a billion people on the globe, over a billion people in Christendom, in, within Christianity, they want to believe that, yes, Jesus is okay and he's right, and that happens to be the religion in which I was raised, so I call myself John or Elizabeth. These are the names the Christians assign to each other. And so I'm a Christian in that way. It just happens to be my physical expression of religion. But Jesus is not the only way. A billion people claiming the name of Christ think that way. And how do they justify it? How do they justify it? They say, well, it wasn't the only way in the Bible. If it's not the only way in the Bible, why are you telling me it's the only way, sir? You see, that's the objection. They say, if it's not the only way in the Bible, God has many, many ways of salvation, at least seven or eight ways, at least, then if he has many ways of salvation, then we have many ways of salvation today. So don't be insistent. Don't be exclusive. Don't say Jesus is unique. Don't say that Jesus is the only way to God. Don't say that. You're too extreme. You see the problem? If they can justify it in the Bible that Jesus is not the only way, then they can undermine our necessity of believing in Christ and preaching Christ as the only way of our salvation. That's why what he's saying here in Hebrews chapter 9, what he is saying throughout his letter is so important. Because that's what his readers were wanting to do. His readers were wanting to say Christ plus other things or even other things apart from Christ. They were wanting to have this kind of mixed approach to religion. But we can't have that. We must have Christ and Christ alone. May he be everything to us. By the Holy Spirit's powerful grace, focused on Christ to the glory of God the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.